This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our monthly Nextworks podcast. This is the first episode of 2022, so we would love to wish you a happy and a healthy 2022. And Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like it, please give us a review on your favorite channel and share the podcast with your colleagues, friends, and family. That would mean the world to us. Now, for this first episode, we're here with a small core team of experts to guide you through the news of the last few weeks. I'm here together with Pascal Coppens and with Peter Hinzen. It's just the three of us today, guys. We started with six a couple of months ago, and today there are three of us, so let's hope in the next episode that we're going to have more people joining us again from our Nextworks crew. But uh, good to have both of you here on the show. I suggest that we dive in immediately. One of the topics that we're going to talk a lot about in 2022 is everything that is related with Web 3.0, cryptocurrencies, the token economy, the metaverse. And our first topics this month are again in this field. Peter, I'm going to start with you. One of the top people of Facebook made an internal announcement that, of course, leaked to the press, where they mentioned that Facebook should completely connect itself to NFTs, to the blockchain, to decentralized autonomous organizations. Can you tell us a little bit more about these new plans of Meta, previously known as Facebook? Absolutely. And uh, of course, best wishes on my behalf as well. Yes, I think the metaverse is something that we're going to hear a lot about this year. And what happened at Meta recently is that we actually heard there was going to be a new chief technology officer. The man is called Andrew Bosworth. His nickname is Boz inside of Meta. He's been a long-time Facebook compatriot. Actually, he's been a long-time compatriot of Mark Zuckerberg because the funny thing about Andrew Bosworth is that it was actually his teacher at Harvard. Well, it was the teaching assistant who taught artificial intelligence to the very, very young Mark Zuckerberg, and that's how the Zuck and the Boz actually got together. So the big difference between Zuckerberg and Bosworth is that Bosworth actually got a degree from Harvard. And as you know, Zuck is just a dropout. But when Bosworth actually finished his degree at Harvard, he then eventually wound up working for Facebook. And he's been an extremely loyal friend to Zuckerberg, even through difficult times. He's internally within Facebook or Meta known as Mr. Fixit. So he's like the Mr. Wolf, basically, of the metaverse. And it is very telling, I think, that Zuck actually called on his good friend Boz to become the chief technology officer. The previous chief technology officer of Facebook was basically gently put out to retirement. And Boz is going to be occupying the chief technology officer role from now on. And I think that's pretty important because Andrew Bosworth was the person who actually was responsible for the newsfeed. Uh, so a not insignificant part of Facebook's history. Bosworth was also the man who wrote an internal memo. So he's, he's especially specialized in internal memos. That's a very important part of his job. But one of the internal memos he wrote a while ago was called The Ugly. And that caused a lot of controversy within Facebook a long time ago because he said, our primary goal at Facebook is to connect people. 
And of course, that was then altered and changed, but he really was substantial in you know, executing the strategy of Facebook in the past. He's now the chief technology officer, and he wrote a new internal memo, as he typically does. And he said, we have to make sure that when we think about the metaverse, that we are the ones who are setting the guardrails. We are the ones who have to make sure that NFTs is us. We have to make sure that blockchain is us. We have to make sure that everything dealing with, indeed, the distributed autonomous organizations, that we are the ones who are clearly setting out the priorities there that are setting out the new guidelines. So I think this was important because it was the first time that we got an idea of what the technology of the metaverse would actually be, according to Facebook slash meta. What is interesting is two elements. One is I think it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of how the technology of the metaverse is going to play out. And second of all, it brings up really interesting questions on the governance. On the technology side, I think what we're all extremely interested in is not just what is the metaverse going to look like. I mean, it's going to be, of course, a virtual reality environment, but I think the format is going to be less interesting than the underlying technology stack. Let me explain. I don't know if you guys ever played Minecraft. So, Pascal, Minecraft? Uh, no, but I know people who have. <laughs> yeah, and Stephen, are you a Minecraft fan? I haven't played it, but my youngest son is a Minecraft wizard. It's incredible what he can, uh, he can build. I'm very excited about what you can do with the platform. So I've seen it hundreds of hours in the living room on our TV screen. Well, and then you probably know, because I have a son who is probably as interested in Minecraft as yours is. What is fascinating is that if you look at Minecraft, underneath Minecraft, there is a whole technology stack and technology platform. If you look at the Minecraft script engine, that's basically JavaScript. And what is fascinating is that young kids who start to you know, put bricks in Minecraft, they have a lot of fun. And when they realize that they can open up you know, the hood and underneath there's a whole technology platform, I mean, it is fascinating because you, know, you can basically use JavaScript and write a couple of lines of code and you can create a tower in 10 seconds where it would have taken you three hours to just click that away by doing it yourself. And that's the fascinating thing. So I think that's the same thing we're going to see with the metaverse is I really don't care what it's going to look like. What I'm really interesting is if you actually open up the hood, what is going to be underneath? And how open and accessible is that going to be? And it's very clear that they're choosing blockchain as the underlying mechanism to do a lot of the really cool, neat stuff. And that brings us to the second question, is how is the metaverse going to be governed? I mean, what's the governance going to be in this type of an environment? And I'm not so really enthusiastic about NFTs. I mean, I'm sure that meta is probably going to make a shitload of money selling stuff, you know, which are NFTs on the metaverse. But that's, I think, relatively trivial. What I think is really interesting is the comment he made on the DAOs. And there is a lot of DAO buzz that's been boiling up around the world, especially now with you know, the whole Web 3.0 announcements you know, left and right. And just to do a step back, I mean, what is a DAO? It's, as you said, a distributed autonomous organization. It's basically a group of smart contracts that allow you to actually control an entity to build the governance of an entity just with blockchain-based smart contracts. So you could imagine, for example, that, I don't know, 
in not so distant future, we could go onto the metaverse and the three of us would decide to say, you know what, we're going to build our own community in the metaverse. But I'm not sure who's going to be the leader. I mean, is Steven going to be the leader? Is Pascal going to be the leader? Am I going to be the leader? And if we can't actually decide who is going to be the boss, then we say, you know what, let's just set up an insurance contract between the three of us that govern our little community. And I think that's the type of things that we're going to see more and more, and probably where Metaverse really wants to make a difference. If you remember, Stephen and Pascal, we had a big Metaverse experiment a long time ago, which was Second Life. I mean, I remember that you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was all about Second Life. Mm -hmm. Second Life very quickly deteriorated into a lot of the shady sides of society. I mean, there was some really weird shit going on in Second Life at a certain moment in time. But if you, for example, buy a house in a virtual city on the metaverse, and you actually don't want that neighborhood to be turned into you know, a scene from you know, some sort of a video game, if you don't want it to be Grand Theft Auto all of a sudden in your neighborhood, then you need rules, you need governance. Just as if you select a real town to live in, you believe in the mayor or you believe in politics or you believe in a city council to make it happen. That's exactly what we're gonna see in the metaverse. So if you say, you know what, I'm gonna open up shop on a particular piece of real estate in the metaverse, but what are the rules here? What is the governance? And can we, for example, use smart contracts to make sure that what we do here is something that we all believe in and that we want to keep in a certain way to actually govern that. So it's going to be basically an opportunity to build the politics into this virtual world. And I think that's going to be extremely interesting. And it's very clear from Boss's comments that he wants to play a big role in that. And I think it's a good thing as well, because that is going to allow probably that the metaverse is not going to deteriorate into second life. And I think it's an opportunity to keep it clean, but also an opportunity to do some really interesting things from a political and governance point of view in this exciting new world of the metaverse. Yeah, and I also think that's a good thing that Meta or Facebook is working on this. Uh, if you look today at, for instance, the hype of NFTs that we had last year, everyone's talking about it. But if you look at the facts, like OpenSea has only 600,000 people who are actually active on the platform. There are only 1 million people in the world who actually acquired NFTs in the last uh, 12 months. So it's a very limited community that is experienced with cryptocurrencies, that knows how wallets work. For the large, large majority of the world, they don't have a clue how they would get it. Even if they wanted to buy some bored ape visuals, they don't know where to find them or how to get them. If a platform like Meta, like Facebook, is gonna work on this, it's gonna be accessible for millions, for billions of people, and probably they're gonna do it in a user-friendly way. It will create more opportunities for brands. So I'm, I'm very excited about that, and the only paradox that you have is that Web 3.0 was announced as the decentralized web. Honestly, I don't believe that that will be the case. I think that we will need large platforms like Facebook to make it mainstream. Otherwise, it will stay a very marginal part of the digital world. And it can only be a success if we scale it. And then you need yeah, the user friendliness that a platform like Facebook can offer. So I'm, I'm glad, actually, that they are stepping into this. Yeah, and, and just to comment on that, I think the need for a stable, scalable platform 
is going to be crucial. And that's what Meta slash Facebook can provide. Mm -hmm. But I think within that, I do hope that, for example, these distributed autonomous organizations might create the opportunity to build more of a governance owned by the users than it has been in the past. I think that's the biggest problem that we see with Facebook is that you have to abide to their rules. And mm -hmm. some people like it, some people don't. But the only way to deal with that is to basically say, I'm going to leave Facebook. True. With DAOs, you might be able to build communities where you're going to have different political ideologies, philosophies being played out in different parts of the metaverse. So I do believe that there's an opportunity to actually build a better version of what they've done in the past. Yeah, but at the same time, probably a big chunk of all the revenues will be guided to Meta. Don't you think so? Yeah. I th they're not going to do this out of charity to make the world a better decentralized place. I think they want to claim this. You're so cynical, Stephen. <laughs> you're so cynical. Yeah. I still have my Facebook stock, so I hope that they're going to get it, a lot of the money of it. No, I think there's a perfectly opportunity to build a better place uh, from China um, with Meta. <laughs> and uh, what I think is interesting about this whole Meta story and trend is that, uh, or it's, it's, it's more than a trend actually, is that China is really also driving the same on the other side of the ocean. And any platform, whether it's Alibaba, uh, Tencent with the games, of course, there's Baidu has created a, a platform called Xirang, Land of Hope, it means, where you can create your own avatars and chat with other participants within a whole virtual world, uh, TikTok, I mean, the ByteDance is onto it. So what you're seeing in China is that there's not just like one Facebook, there's like 10 different companies all building these platforms around Meta, around this virtual world. And one of the most uh, interesting things is an announcement that came just last week from uh, Alibaba that will start using AR into their platform called DingTalk. Have you heard about DingTalk? I've been to DingTalk with you, You've uh, been to DingTalk, wow. We've D been there together. Uh, we yes. heard someone speak from it. Yeah, we had it on our phone when we were in China last <laughs> night, yeah. if I... If Indeed. I remember so, that right. Ding talk in Chinese is uh, ding ding. It sounds very nice, ding ding. But uh, ding ding is kind of a total collaboration tool. And this collaboration tool for business primarily is really about sending files, receiving files. It's about working together and uh, creating meetings together, like you can do on Salesforce right now as well. And, and this is really the Salesforce of China run by Alibaba, but they have 500 million users. That's not just a few users, 500 million users. They have invested for the past years in many, many startups in AR and VR. And one will be the DingTalk AR glasses. And these glasses, you can put them on. They're still about $2,000, so it's quite expensive. Uh, but maybe some rich companies in China can pay for that. And these glasses will allow you to have virtual meetings. And this is really what uh, also Bill Gates said, that in a couple of years from now, most of our meetings will all happen in a virtual space where we actually have real people and you see them around the meeting room and you can actually talk to them without being in the same room. And this is what Alibaba is betting big on. And so I see this both from a business perspective, from a gaming perspective, from like TikTok and e-commerce and, and in every single industry, they're starting to build platforms. But talking about can we make the world a better place, also the Shanghai government has now decided to bet big on Meta. You probably know there's this five-year plan of China and they decide, well, let's spend another $1 trillion into digital for the next five years. It's going to be $1.6 trillion to be exact. And so they're going to spend a huge amount of money. And the Shanghai government has decided two weeks ago that Meta development will be one of the key priorities within the next five years 
to change everything in Shanghai, mainly for public services, but also for things like business offices, of course, social entertainment. So what I predict, what I see happening in China, if Shanghai is an example, then they usually are in China, that within four or five years from now, we're going to see actually virtual governance within cities. And so the smart cities that you will have more and more will not just be physical, they will actually be virtual as well. And any service you want to use into the public environment will be in a metaverse environment. So this is a big announcement from Shanghai. And so this could lead to more initiatives and specifically more designs and creativity within that space. So if together with Facebook and then in China with Alibaba and all these guys, TikTok together with the governments of cities, I mean, Meta is definitely going to go somewhere. The only difference in China, of course, the regulation will be mainly put by the government and not by the platforms. And have you seen the first demos, Pascal? Because Facebook also has the Horizons platform, for instance, mm -hmm. where they try to organize these virtual meetings. For me, it still feels like a, a gimmick thing right now at this point. Is it a different level already? Is it, well, is it, nobody knows. Is it yet. really user-friendly? I mean, is it or is it still awkward? Well, nobody knows yet. It's been announced just a week ago, so it's very new. But if you know Alibaba and you, you look on Tmall, which is their biggest uh, e-commerce platform for B2C, you already see all this interactivity happening. And so buying within a virtual world is something that Alibaba already has done for many, many years into Tmall. And that's not just a gimmick. That's really cool. And people are using it constantly. So I just can expect that if Alibaba takes the elements and the experience they have from Tmall into this uh, Ding Talk new environment, you're going to be able to almost touch people into your virtual meeting room and, and maybe uh, tell them what to do uh, in the right way and whatever you want to do. I mean, it's it's going to be very immersive. Yeah. And so this is really what I believe. But it's going to take a little time. But Alibaba is, is going to spend, they already spent more than a billion dollars uh, just on, on acquiring some startups to be able to make it cool. Yeah, and the price will go down rapidly, I oh, assume. Oh, yeah, uh, very much. 2000, once it's 200, we're going to have a, a totally different adoption scheme. Yeah, and that's everything to do with scale in China. I mean, companies like Facebook have scale, companies like Alibaba have scale, and when they start putting that scale against uh, their investment, then suddenly you see the price dropping very, very quickly. So yes, we can expect price dropping soon. Maybe a question I have, Pascal, on the broader is that when you talk about DingTalk and the 500 million subscribers or users that they have, mm -hmm. How successful have these Chinese companies been in attracting a Western audience to you know, their services? Because I would have expected at this moment to actually see more of that. Yeah, within the business community is very difficult, mainly because everything's in Chinese. I mean, there's dual languages interfaces, but people are chatting in Chinese very often on these platforms. So inviting someone who doesn't speak or read Chinese is, is like a very, very hard to do. But Alibaba is probably the company that's been investing most into going global. Many of the foreign companies working in China are using DingTalk. And so they're already used to use DingTalk as a foreign multinational operating in China. But it's always the companies related to China somehow. So going beyond those companies is very difficult. But that's why I do believe Alibaba has a good shot, because most of the big international companies worldwide are actually in China. Interesting. Yeah, very cool. And just for all of you who are listening, you can feel that we're really excited about this whole evolution of Metaverse Web 3.0. So Peter and me, we decided to organize a new Nextworks inspiration trip 
in May, we're going to go for two days to London to talk with leaders in the field of cryptocurrency, leaders in the field of AR, VR, to really better understand what the next few years will bring. So if you want to join us, just send us a personal message and we'll give you all the details. And uh, we're very, very much looking forward to that. So hope you will join us on that tour. During this podcast, guys, we're going to talk a couple of times of uh, Phoenixes, big companies that completely reinvent themselves. Uh, Peter, you've written a book about it, The Phoenix and the Unicorn. We get really excited about big companies that have the ability to play the game differently. And the first one that I would like to talk about during this episode is Best Buy. Best Buy is one of those companies that really, really suffered from the boost of e-commerce, the arrival of Amazon. But if you look at their evolution on the stock market, in the last eight years, they almost went times six in value. So they figured out how to bring value. They invested in e-commerce. They reinvented their stores. They reinvented customer service. In the previous episode, we talked about how they stepped into healthcare even. And now they're doing another step that I think is interesting to look at. They decided to launch their own media platform or their in-house media service agency, you could call it. And what they want to do is towards their B2B clients, the brands that they sell in their stores, they want to go to those manufacturers and they want to offer them the opportunity to actually advertise on the best buy platform that they have. They don't see themselves just as a store. They see them as a platform where consumers come to inform themselves about new products, about certain services. And if you look at the amount of interactions that Best Buy has on a yearly basis, they have about 3 billion interactions with their customers per year, which makes them one of the largest media companies in the world, you could say, if you think about that, or at least one of the largest media brands in the world. And they have a lot of data about what kind of products customers are looking for. They know which channels they use. They know their journey. And this is, of course, an enormous opportunity for their brands and manufacturers to advertise their products on Best Buy to make sure that those products are sold in a better way. And now they want to offer this service. This is not completely new. Uh, this is what a company like Amazon has been doing for years. The Amazon advertising platform is worth a lot of money. But now you see how these Phoenixes are also understanding the value of their platform and are also translating this into opportunities for both their brands to grow their own business, but at the same time grow their revenues. If you look at the market size of digital advertising, it will probably grow this year, according to some forecasts, towards 41 billion US dollars. That is a growth of 31% compared with last year. So they see the opportunity and they want to grab that. And I think it's interesting to see how one of these large traditional companies is taking every opportunity they can find to bring value to their customers. So I thought that was a smart move by Best Buy. Yeah, interesting to see which kind of their partners are going to leverage that potential and see how that's going to play out. Yeah, have you already seen announcements from people who want to take advantage of this or is it just uh, Best Buy who, who launched it? It's a Best Buy announcement that I saw. So they're bringing this to market as from 2022. So it's not clear yet who's going to jump on this opportunity. But I can imagine if you look at the brands that they are selling and the amount of volume that they are selling, that many of their brands will be a very interesting. I mean, one of the challenges in marketing is to advertise at the right moment and to the right people. And a platform like Best Buy is almost the closest you can get to a sale. 
So if I would be a marketer of Sony, for instance, I would be very interested in advertising on their platform. But I think the, the biggest question is going to be, how is that really going to fundamentally change the marketing mix and the marketing dynamics? Because we just had the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Typically, that was like a one big moment where everybody was launching all their new stuff at the same time. That just seems less and less relevant. I mean, Apple, of course, has been doing their own private shows very successfully over the years. And I think it's only gotten more intense in the COVID period where they see that as a way to reach out to their consumers and tell them their story. This is like best by offering a platform, but it probably means that the whole idea of the one big trade show where everybody launches everything at the same time, that is probably never, never going to come back in the same way that it ever was. Yeah, I agree. Plus, it's going to be another hit for the traditional media channels. Let's say, imagine that you bring out a new camera and you want to launch that. Are you going to do big advertisements in newspapers and on TV? Or are you going to spend that money on Best Buy where you know that people are already in that sales funnel? So I think more and more of that marketing mixed budget will go to the sales funnel and less to traditional awareness campaigns because the amount of money you need to invest to build awareness is just huge and you're very unsure what the impact will be if you get closer to the actual sale. I mean, that is money spent better, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah, interesting. So. I have uh, very little to add on Best Buy when it comes to China because uh, Best Buy is considered the best case study for how to fail in China. And so <laughs> it's uh, any business school will actually give you the whole case of if you really want to fail in China, look at Best Buy. And, <laughs> and I used to go to their stores in uh, Shanghai and Xuzhahui area where they had a great store with all the electronics you could imagine. But the problem was that they didn't beat the prices of Chinese mm -hmm. anywhere in all the other stores. And so they sold just the exact same thing with the exact same communication to the exact same people. And they thought that if they would buy the best location in Shanghai, that everybody would flock there. And that completely did not happen because the Chinese are totally okay to just stop at the next bus stop and go to another store and go and shop there. And so this is a, a real good case study of uh, how not to go into the market in China. Don't compete on price in China. But communication-wise, they weren't so good in China. So I hope now it's a lot better with their new platform. <laughs> but I would assume that they're probably left China by now. Or oh, they, 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 yeah, they left. That's yeah. why they, they, it's a good case study for how yeah. to fail because they, they all, they left just two years after, after opening okay. up. Yeah. One of the many Western failures in China, I would uh, say. Yeah, it's within the top two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's continue on China, Pascal. The Olympic Winter Games are coming. We read a lot about that in the news. Eh? The government here in Belgium is organizing a digital detox for our yes. <laughs> Olympic friends when they go to China. Leave your computer at home, leave your smartphone at home. I mean, if you're getting quarantined and you don't get all that stuff with you, that's going to be a very, very long two weeks for our athletes. But let's talk about innovation. Is there anything to expect in terms of innovation during the Olympics? Yeah, there's a lot of things that uh, China is doing right now that we should really talk about. But this has been overshadowed by this uh, boycott on the Olympics uh, for the past many, many months, almost a year now. A lot to do with human rights, of course, Hong Kong, Xinjiang and so on. And you probably remember the tennis player Peng Shui that uh, 
was this uh, sexual assault allegation that was uh, then talked about. And, and so really the Olympics today, nobody's talking about anything but bad news. Now, this is not mm -hmm. the first time, typically every four years, uh, another city or another country has to deal with a lot of boycotts. But for this time, it's, it's really bad, so bad that the Biden administration decided not to send any diplomatic team or official representation to the Olympic Games. Probably they also don't want to stay two weeks in quarantine, but the reality is that they are not sending anyone. The UK is following that, Australia is following that, Canada is following that. And so, yeah, China was pretty upset just uh, the last weeks that this happened. And they said, well, in games or in sport, there shouldn't be any politics. This is really what the IOC charter is all about. But if you look at every Olympic game for the past many, many years, there's been nothing but politics. And, and so this is something that China's uh, kind of saying we should really not do that. And I don't know if you remember the ping pong diplomacy uh, of the 70s, where uh, ping pong between China and the U.S., created the relations between both uh, again under Mao Zedong. Well, that is not happening. And the government in China said very clearly, it's quite arrogant, the said of the US, not to want to attend because ultimately they weren't even invited in the first place. So uh, now we don't have to send the invitations anymore. Uh, but that's nice uh, that they actually tell us in advance that they won't attend. Now, France is going to attend South Korea and, of course, Mr. Putin is going to attend and be next to Xi Jinping, probably. So a lot of political is happening. But what's very clear is that this has started to split the world geopolitical even further. But we're not here to talk about politics. We're here to talk about innovation, like you said, Stephen. And uh, China has put this games, this Winter Olympic Games, which will be from the 4th of February until the 20th of February, as the greatest games ever, you know, when China does something it has to be the greatest and the best. And so they wanted to make the safest games, also the greenest games, uh, the most interactive games. And of course, being China, they want to have the biggest infrastructure on the world for these games. So they've succeeded in all four of these aspects. So talking about the safest games, this has everything to do with COVID-19. And China still today has zero tolerance policy, which means as soon as a uh, there's some cases happening in certain cities. They put the city pretty much in lockdown. Just Monday, there was actually about 20 new cases in Tianjin, which is very close to Beijing. And they asked 14 million people to do tests this week. Right. Uh, so this is going to happen. Uh, they're not going to put the city Tianjin into lockdown yet, but they're very serious about it until after the Olympic Games. I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. But they have decided that every athlete should wear a wearable thermometer. And this is like a chip the size of a fingernail uh, that you put on your skin and it measures your temperature at any given moment. And this is controlled in a control room. And so as soon as there's one athlete or staff or anybody that the temperature is going up with a few degrees, I mean, there's probably going to be 20 Chinese around that person and asking them to go into certain uh, certain zones. So and it's check just it. a chip on your fingernail? It's, it, on no, it's the, the size of your fingernail, size of but it's fingernail, put right. on your skin somewhere. Okay. Uh, and it, it can measure temperature to a very, very high accuracy. And a tracking device probably as well, so oh, that they know where yeah, you are. Lots of other things and direct <laughs> communication through 5G, so Xi Jinping knows exactly what's happening. But no, that's not into the, the, the press release. Uh, the press release is all about this wearable thermometers, but also smart robots everywhere. 
So we're going to see very little people or few people because they're going to put robots everywhere to, of course, disinfect, to do temperature checks, to monitor everything. And so the athletes are going to get used to talk to robots rather than to people to get somewhere. Very cool. But it should be the safest games from a COVID perspective. And then the greenest games as well. Actually, the whole Olympic, Winter Olympic, will be 100% green energy, completely on wind and solar. So there's going to be zero energy coming from other places. And that's really what they're going for. Another thing that they're doing in the greenest games, which I still can't get my head around it, but uh, the Freon cleaner refrigerant to actually make sure that the ice stays the same uh, is always good, is now replaced by uh, carbon dioxide actually cleaner refrigerant. And, and so CO2, transcritical cooling system, it's called the CO2, make sure that there's no CO2 emission. And so I'm still not clear how that's possible, but Freon for sure is a much worse gas to actually create CO2 emission. And especially on the energy consumption, there's a big, big difference. So they claim that this new way of using carbon dioxide is actually helping the CO2 emission going to zero to keep the ice at the same temperature. And it's like a variation of 0.5 degrees Celsius that they can keep it constant. So this is really very high tech. Uh, of course, there's things like self-driving car buses. They're all on hydrogen, all the buses driving on during the Winter Olympic Games. So it's not electrical. And then things like biodegradable uh, tableware and other things. I mean, lots of green stuff. China wants to show they're serious about green, and I'm sure they will. The thing that I like is this interactive Olympic Games that's going to happen. So there's two main things there. There's the mini apps. I don't know if you know the mini programs from WeChat, but basically you have a QR code, you scan the QR code, and then you can see a kind of a mini application. And they will do this for the whole Olympics, but this has an educational goal. And so they want to educate about three to 400 million Chinese on what Winter Olympics and skiing and, and skating is all about. And they're hoping in the next five years to have 300 million Chinese who can ski and skate. So that's quite a lot, a big target. And they're going to do that with Olympic courses. And they've hired actors and famous influencers to tell everything about what's happening live at this Olympics. The other thing is they're going to have an 8K ultra high definition, 360 degree broadcasting system where the whole Olympic and specifically the skating and everything around it will be in 360 degree cameras and you will be able to view it from every angle, replay it instantly whenever you want and all through 5G, which means that the whole country can actually access it and see it in real time. There's going to be interactive product placement talking about uh, Tmall before with, uh, from Alibaba, uh, where you can just buy things online. So it's going to be amazing. Just nobody talks about it because we're talking about Biden having a, a boycott on China right now. But this is really cool. And if you know 5G right now, China has about 1.3 million 5G base stations. So what that means is that more than 300 cities have full coverage of 5G. There's right now 500 million Chinese connections on 5G, and I'm talking about people with cell phones or smartwatches or whatever it is. So that's a huge population that they're going to actually be able to see the Olympics through the 5G live streamed in 5K ultra high definition, 360 degree. On the infrastructure point, and that's the last thing I want to talk about because that's really cool, is that the high-speed train, you know, China has the biggest high-speed trains in the world. They have like 60 or 70% of all the high-speed train 
railroads in the world is in China only. Um, and they're putting this high-speed train from Beijing to Zhangjiakou, where the, the Winter Olympic will be. It's about 170 kilometers north of Beijing. And what's interesting is that this will be a 5G-enabled train. So they retrofitted the whole train. They changed the whole train to actually make sure that the 5G can actually be received in the train with aggregators and uh, capabilities so that the 13 tunnels and two bridges they go through is not interrupting the signal at all. And so you can see in real life this broadcasting, this, this 360 degree broadcasting on 5G on your cell phone. The train is also has like a typical for the airplanes. Every seat has this big screen, a huge screen where you can actually follow the Olympics. They even have a studio in the train where you can do interviews. It's 5G broadcast. I mean, but the cool thing about it is that this is actually becoming a standard. And so they're putting this to change all the trains over the whole China. And so all the trains in the next two, three years from now will all have 5G uninterrupted over every train throughout the whole China. And that train right now for the Olympics, it has about 400 base stations just between the two points from the Olympic village to the Beijing area where it starts. So really cool. Of course, the biggest airport in the world almost uh, has been created in Beijing. So the Beijing airport with the largest single terminal roof, 180,000 square meters. It's, it's an incredible roof. It's, it's wonderful to see. It's like a star shape. And then there's something, I don't know if you remember the bird nest from 2008 uh, yeah. Olympics. Well, of course, iconic. yeah, very iconic, uh, actually uh, designed by uh, Ai Weiwei. If, uh, he, he's not a China fan anymore, but that's a different story. But the real thing now is they're building this skating oval right now. And it's called National Speed Skating Oval or Ice Ribbon. That's the new word to remember, the Ice Ribbon. And it's a saddle roof in one piece, 200 meters wide. It's an incredible infrastructure. And so all the high tech that China has thought of over the past years is all being put in that one infrastructure and building. So it's going to be very cool to see that. And they're going to showcase a lot of innovation there where they're going to do like wind tunnel labs and stuff like that. They're doing weather forecasting way more advanced than anything we've ever seen and so on. The last thing I want to talk about about the Winter Olympics is about the central bank digital currency. I don't want to talk a lot about it because we talked about the last podcast about that, but that should be launched also at the Winter Olympics uh, going more national, which means that, uh, yeah, the whole world will now be looking at the central bank digital currency as a new way of payment to do cross-border e-commerce. And that should scare the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, <laughs> because uh, somehow they will take some of that uh, their power away over time. But that's not so important. So China is actually downplaying the CBDC right now because they don't want to shock the world with the fact that they're part of the financial game tomorrow. But all will be about innovation and we're gonna see a lot of cool stuff. But nobody talks about it, that's why we do this on this uh, Radar podcast. So how is it perceived in China? Is Are people excited about the Olympics? Oh, yes. Is this something that is uh, buzzing? I mean, is, Oh yes, uh, yes. Uh, and, and, and I think Chinese hope that uh, uh, the US will boycott even more and not send athletes so they can win even more gold medals, but uh, I don't think that will happen. That actually happened in 1980 once with the Moscow Winter Olympics when uh, Russia or Soviet Union was actually uh, invading Afghanistan. Uh, US did not send any athletes at that time. And that created, uh, of course, a lot of 
medals for the Russians. But no, the whole China is going crazy now on we will win all these medals. And, <laughs> and so China is not a skating or, or snow uh, or skiing uh, country. And uh, 10 years ago, nobody had any idea what snow was about, except in the north of China, there's a lot of snow, but they didn't use it as a sport. But now everybody's crazy about it. The other thing that has nothing to do with the Winter Olympics is China's becoming a top surfing country. And so <laughs> that's also something that nobody ever thinks about. The Chinese on a surfing board is not something you would imagine. No. So they're like adding things to their bucket list that they want to yes. become yes. the top yep. country in. Fantastic. Thank you. Are you going to, you're not going to go to the Olympics? Uh, no, it's, yeah. no, I'm not invited. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for, for sharing that, Pascal. I, I love your excitement about it and really cool, cool things to hear. Um, I want to share another story about a phoenix that is trying to reinvent itself, another retailer. I would like to talk for a few minutes about Jumbo, the Dutch retailer that is now setting up a partnership with the delivery service company Gorillas. For people who are not familiar with Gorillas, it is one of those fast, real-time retail grocery delivery companies. You order on their platform and their promise is that they will deliver those goods within 10 minutes. They work in multiple cities now around the world and they always have like dark warehouses and dark stores that they use to distribute their products from. But it's an amazing story. Yeah? If you look to the history of Gorillas, they were founded in May 2020. So they're not even two years old. And a few months ago, they had another raise of capital and their current value today is 3.1 billion US dollars for a company that is a year and a half old. It just shows the hype around the last mile delivery. We've talked about that in previous episodes as well. But of course, because of the pandemic, the growth of this instant delivery of people who were not allowed to go to the store or who were too scared to go to a store has just exploded. And now one of the traditional retailers in the Benelux, Jumbo, has decided to work together with them. In the UK, Tesco is already working with them. So this is not the first case, but it is the first case in the Benelux. And I'm very excited about it because typically when you see a delivery service like that popping up, that is such a hype. The reaction of traditional retailers is like, oh, but it's not profitable, it's unscalable, it will never be a success in our market. And they look for reasons why it will not work or why it's not sustainable. And Yobo is saying, we're not going to fight the hype this time, we're going to join it. We're going to make sure that we get benefits from this because at the end of the day, it's what the consumer wants. And apparently the consumer wants instant deliveries. If they're making a meal and they forgot to buy milk for that meal, they just want to push a button and a few minutes later, they want to have that bottle of milk. They don't want to get into their car and drive to a store. No, they want that to be delivered to them at the same time while they're cooking. So Yumbo is like, okay, this is clearly a demand in the market, so we're going to work together with them. And um, they got a little bit criticized for that because other retailers are thinking like, okay, maybe it's not so smart to give your Yumbo customers a gorilla delivery service experience, uh, but that's not what they're going to do. You will be able to buy those groceries on the Yumbo app or on the Yumbo site. So it's a Yumbo experience. The only part that they outsource to Gorillas is the delivery. It's like everyone who is in e-commerce that works together with DHL or with a local postal service, that's what they want to do. So they keep their own brand power, but they use the logistics of Gorillas. 
which is, I think, a smart thing. It's like McDonald's that doesn't do the delivery themselves. It's like they are using the logistics system. And this is probably something that we're going to see more and more, I think, where you will have like expert partners to help retailers with that last mile delivery. And probably that is also how companies like Gorillas will become mainstream and grow even further. It reminds me a little bit of what happened five years ago when Amazon acquired Whole Foods. I'm sure you guys remember that. That was a, a huge hype. Uh, everyone was talking about, okay, this is now Amazon putting their feet on the ground. This is like the first time that one of these big tech companies actually acquires a traditional player. So the expectations were high. They were never really fulfilled is what we see now five years later, but it created a boost in e-commerce in the retail world in the United States. And one of the big winners at that moment was Instacart. Instacart is a company that allows you to buy groceries from any store that you like, and then they send people into the store to select those groceries and they do the delivery. So many of these retailers were so scared that Amazon was moving into the physical retail world that they wanted to speed up their innovation and speed up their e-commerce. They knew they couldn't do everything themselves, so they used an external party that was an expert in that part of the customer experience. So that's how Instacart grew. And today we see the same thing with gorillas in European markets, but at a higher pace. Now it's an instant delivery, but I'm sure that because of these moves, we're gonna see growth in online grocery buying. Today it's still a pretty limited part, and UK is one of the largest markets for online groceries, but in other European markets it's still rather limited. These kind of services and big retailers that jump on that wagon will grow that market in the next few months and years. Interesting. And what I find really interesting is also how this is going to play out in the whole gig economy, because companies like Gorillas can't actually function without a solid way to actually find the riders. Mm -hmm. As you know, I'm on the board of a newspaper group, a media company. And for example, in the Netherlands, we have quite a lot of difficulty in finding people who still want to do paper routes. I remember when we were young, doing a paper route was an interesting way to actually make a living as a young person. Today, these young persons don't want to deliver newspapers. They will work for Gorilla or they will work for you know, Deliveroo mm -hmm. or you know, all of these companies. But of course, the, the legal environment, the environment to think about how are we going to treat these employees in that gig economy, that's something where I think we're going to have to make some really, really big inroads to make sure that these kinds of companies can scale and grow the way that the consumer wants to grow. So I think that's also something that we have to be very, very mindful of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be the challenge to grow that market. I fully agree. Yeah, it's very interesting to see also how China looks at this because uh, just yesterday there was an announcement from JD.com, the biggest e-commerce company in China, just like Amazon, competitor of Alibaba. They're opening four new stores in Holland, JD.com, and they're called Oshama. And these stores are the exact opposite of delivery. And if there's one company in the world that has figured out how to make delivery work, it is JD.com. There's no better company in the world to deliver in time at, at the highest speed. I mean, Stephen, we were at JD yeah. together in Beijing. I mean, it's they were talking about, what was it, lightning speed delivery? I will never forget that. The, the, and it, it's three years ago, eh, Pascal? It, it was yes. before COVID. So they, they were like, our average delivery time now is 30 minutes. 
Mm-hmm. But that, that is like the stone age of delivery. Oh, we don't want to stay there. We're going to lightning delivery. We yep. want to deliver within five minutes. I mean, we were flabbergasted at that time. So JD.com, imagine that company that can deliver to anyone, anywhere at real-time delivery has decided that delivery is not the thing for Holland. And so this is a little bit counter to what's just happening because what they opened is four new stores, uh, Oshama it's called, and these stores are actually fully automated stores. So the stores is actually like a pickup store, but there's no more people in the store. Everything's fully automated. And so they will have like demonstration stores, which is like Ikea. You can just go and see everything. And it's not just about groceries. There's furniture, there's electronics, there's everything you can imagine. And you can just go and look like Ikea, but then you have to place your order. And then you have to go to a specific place in the city to pick it up. And this will be very fast because it's all robots that are picking it up for you and then packaging it and giving it to you. And so that's their concept. And knowing JD going into metaverse to keep the story going, they will probably make this whole virtual experience in a couple of years as well. So you don't even need to go to the store to see it. You can actually feel the sofa and smell the peaches and whatever you want. And so this is really what's going to happen. And they just want people to pick up their things directly. Now, you could still have a delivery company go and pick it up for you. But the whole idea is that they're going into full automation rather than into delivery because they say, just like Peter says, there's so much regulation and legal things around that, that they can't rely on the future of having enough people available for these deliveries. And so they just want to make it simple, easy, cost effective to deliver any product you want in a specific location in the city. And so that's the direction they're going to. And where was that? In in, in Holland. In Holland, and JD is coming to JD to Holland. is already they opened four stores already. This was the news yesterday, and one is in Utrecht in Amsterdam. Uh, there's four stores in Holland. Okay. I mean, JD has a huge amount of money that they want to spend now on tackling the European market, and this will be with automated stores. And they're using the JD brand in Holland as well. No, it's called Oshama. Oshama, okay. Yeah. But but I assume in China they still keep on delivering like crazy. Then it's, of it's course, specifically. Yes, of course for our markets where they have the shortage of, uh, of people it's, doing That's it. the problem. If you don't have the people in China, there's still like a few hundred million people that are willing to drive a scooter for a little money. And so yeah. you don't have that here. And so they're looking at it from a different perspective. And I think they're maybe already a few years ahead when it comes to this meta world, uh, looking at that for the future. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Thanks for, uh, for adding that. I want to go back to the West. Peter, I want you to tell a story. I'm sure you will tell this in your own fantastic way. But there was news this week in Silicon Valley about Elizabeth Holmes. Maybe you need to tell the world a little bit about the history of Elizabeth Holmes, the fallen poster girl of Silicon Valley. But the real question is, will the verdict from the jury change the mindset of Silicon Valley because of what happened or what Elizabeth Holmes actually did and how she fooled everyone? Sure, absolutely. So Elizabeth Holmes is, I think, was the poster child of the new generation of medical breakthroughs in Silicon Valley. She was the controversial founder of Teranos, which was a health startup that basically promised that with just one tiny little prick of blood from your finger, they would be able to do an absolute full analysis of everything that is right or wrong with your body. And uh, Elizabeth Holmes was a university dropout. She was actually only 19 when she started Theranos. 
And Theranos grew extremely quickly in basically building up its prestige, but in reality, it was actually a big fraud. That's the short version of it. There is an absolutely brilliant book about this called Bad Blood, which I think is one of the best books that I have ever read, but it is a thriller when you read how this company grew so quickly, attracted an enormous amount of money from investors, and eventually it all fell apart and it turned out to be an absolute scam. And Elizabeth Holmes was put on trial. Uh, This is a trial that was heavy in the media. And of course, recently what happened is that Elizabeth Holmes was found guilty, not on all accounts, but she was found guilty in basically everything dealing with defrauding investors and wire fraud. So we don't know what the verdict is going to be, so we don't know what her sentence is going to be, but she has been found guilty. She's probably going to appeal, but it was an extremely high publicized drama in Silicon Valley. But the fundamental question was, her motto was always, fake it until you make it. So she promised the world that she was going to revolutionize the world of healthcare and medicine. As I said, just with the prick of blood, the reality is that she teamed up with Walgreens. You had health centers in Walgreens in the US where people would come in, they would expect just to put a little prick in their finger, but then the nurse would say, well, the machines are not working very well today. We're gonna have to draw a big size of blood in a normal syringe like we used to do. And then that blood was transported to Theranos. It wasn't put in their magical machines, but actually behind the curtains, there were old traditional Siemens machines, you know, where they put in the blood and did the analysis. So it was not just a fraud, it was an elaborate fraud. This was an absolute huge scam. In the meantime, she had gotten hundreds of millions of dollars from investors. She had put together a board of directors where Henry Kissinger was on the board. I mean, George Shultz, the previous um, you know, top uh, politician in the US was on the board and she had surrounded herself with people who wanted to believe the story. Anyway, she's now found guilty. It was heavily publicized and all over the media. But the fundamental debate in Silicon Valley is, well, was she wrong to claim the fake it till you make it mantra? Because maybe that's part of entrepreneurship. Maybe if you're a brilliant thinker with an amazing new idea and you attract money, maybe you can't actually prove 100% that you're capable of delivering that. Maybe you need to fake it till you make it at a certain moment. I mean, uh, let's be honest, we've seen a lot of companies that in the beginning they had an idea but they couldn't make it work and then after a while they could actually turn it into something that is substantial and actually very real. Here, of course, I think we can all probably see that what Elizabeth Holmes did was absolutely wrong. I mean, she deliberately knew that she was telling a lie and, and defrauding investors. But the whole debate in Silicon Valley is, well, is fake it till you make it a bad thing or a good thing? And of course, we're now seeing that a lot of other companies that were hyped are getting into trouble. I mean, it's not just Theranos in the world of medical. Another example that is really interesting, for example, is everything dealing with Nikola. So we all know Tesla. I mean, Tesla is the story where nobody wanted to believe Elon Musk that he would change the world of automotive, and then he did. So this was an example, he faked it, and then he made it. 
But there was a competitor of Tesla called Nikola, which is, of course, you know, a very nice, cute reference to Nikola Tesla. But Nikola says, well, we're going to build zero emission vehicles. And he wanted to focus on the trucks. And Nikola is a company that actually went to the stock exchange. It is still a company of $4.2 billion on the stock exchange. But at a certain moment, it was worth almost 30, 40 times that. When it IPO'd, and it IPO'd in 2020, it went up like crazy, worth more than a lot of the traditional automotive companies. And to give you an idea, the revenue last year in 2020, a revenue of the company Nikola was less than $100,000. I mean, how crazy is that? At this moment, what we have is that the founder of Nikola is actually now ousted. So he left the company. He still quickly sold $300 million worth of stock just to have a little bit of a reserve nest egg. But he's now under criminal investigation as well. Theranos was not publicly quoted. It was just private investors who lost all their money. Too bad. I mean, Nikola is a public company. And of course, that is even more severe. So I think Nikola is, again, one of those examples of fake it till you make it and you can't make it. So you keep faking it. So we're going to have to be very cautious that in this whole hype around investments that grow so spectacularly, that we're not drawn into pipe dreams that don't materialize. So I think in a way, Theranos is a poster example of that. And Elizabeth Holmes is the poster child that is now under investigation and probably is going to get a pretty severe sentence. But it shows that in the crazy world of valuations and innovations, we're going to see some accidents happen of people who faked it a lot, but eventually can't make it. So um, yeah. I think it's a story that's going to continue to develop. Well, and Peter, we don't have to look that far. Huh? If you look in Belgium, we've had Lernot de Hausby, the voice technology company that almost everyone in the country had stock of. And yeah, it didn't work out that well for everyone. And then last month we had the trial as well. So it's something that you see in entrepreneurship all over the world. And this is, of course, a huge story of Silicon Valley, but probably every country has their own story where that happened. You know, one of the nice things about the link that you just made is that the same journalist that exposed the fraud at Larnot and Houseby is the same journalist that actually exposed Theranos and Elizabeth really? Holmes. So yeah, absolutely. And, and he's the author of Bad Blood. So fascinating that there's actually a link between Leonard and Houseby <laughs> and Ypres and uh, Elizabeth Holmes in Silicon Valley. That's a great anecdote. That's great. I want to go to my last Phoenix that I would like to talk about. John Deere, one of the largest manufacturers of tractors and other devices for the agricultural market. You mentioned CES a couple of minutes ago, Peter. Last week it was CES, and this was probably the most disappointing CES of its entire <laughs> history. Almost every significant company that is in technology didn't show up because of COVID. So basically, it was like a car trade show. It was all about cars. It was about BMW, where you could change the color of your car instantly and those kind of things. But maybe the coolest news came actually from John Deere. And um, they announced that their fully autonomous tractor is now completely ready. Uh, they've been talking about this for years. They've been experimenting with autonomous tractors for years. But now in 2022, it is actually ready and they will start selling it in the next few months. And this is a breakthrough in the world of agriculture. 
where the efficiency and the productivity of farms will go up tremendously if they use these kind of devices. Of course, as a self-driving tractor, it's, let's say, easier to drive on a field than a self-driving car. Uh, there are no obstacles or less obstacles. There are no other cars. There are no pedestrians. But still, it's, it's quite a challenge because this is now a fully autonomous uh, vehicle, which means that it needs some smart insights in what it sees on a field. For instance, if there's a bird in front of the tractor, the tractor needs to know that is a bird and you don't need to stop. So they added AI cameras and technology to it to see the difference between a bird and a dog. If there's a dog on the field, the tractor will actually stop. If there's a bird, it knows, okay, this is completely safe and we can continue to do our work. But what's interesting is that they're also adding a human support function to the self-driving car. So there's no need for the farmer to be in the tractor. The farmer can just do whatever he likes. Uh, while the tractor is doing the work. But if the machine is uncertain about a certain obstacle or a certain decision that it needs to make, the machine will actually call a human contact center. The human will then use the cameras to see what is happening on the field. And then the human will make a decision for the machine what it should do. If it has to make a certain maneuver, if it has to stop, or if it can just continue, or if it has to call the farmer. So basically, this is a zero effort device for the farmer. The only thing the farmer needs to do is bring the tractor to the field at the beginning of the day, and then eight hours later, he can come back, put the tractor somewhere else, the tractor does the work. Eight hours later, the farmer comes back and does it all over again. So the machine can actually almost work 24 seven. So there's a lot more work that can be done in a shorter amount of time. Today, this is made for large field, so it doesn't make that much sense to buy one of these devices if you have a small piece of land. The price per vehicle will be about $600,000, so it's not cheap. But in the US, you have these huge farm fields where these machines are the perfect solution to make it more efficient, to make food cheaper. And the end goal that John Deere actually wants to reach is to reduce hunger in the world and make sure that we have more food that it has produced in a more effective way, that prices will go down, that efficiency will go up, so that more people will actually get fresh vegetables and fresh food. So in my opinion, this was the coolest news story of CES. And usually you hear things from Google and Amazon. Now it was in the world of agriculture about tractors. Yeah, and, and just to comment on that, I think um, what is gonna be very interesting is who takes advantage of that? Because I think John Deere being an American company, Agriculture in the U.S. is quite different from agriculture, for example, in Europe. Mm -hmm. And we all know those wonderful movie stock images of rolling fields and huge acres and acres and acres. And that's what you have in the U.S. So actually there, I think autonomous is going to work really, really well. I had a discussion with one of the competitors of John Deere here in Europe, and they said, well, you know, if we want to think about that future, it's probably not going to happen in countries like the Netherlands or Belgium because there are all these little fields mm -hmm. with all those really complex things and you know people put fences all over the place and it's just a nightmare. You know? But if we go to Eastern Europe, for example, if you go to the Ukraine, where you have like you know huge, huge, huge farms, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of hectares of wheat, that's where autonomous actually really, really works. So I think this is also something where it's not just about replacing 
the human in this. It's about economy of scale. And I think that is going to be very interesting how we're going to look at the future of agriculture in that respect as well. But love what John Deere is doing. And I'm really curious what uh, the European competitors in the world of farming are going to do, because I think we have uh, a pretty interesting role to play there as well. I think you can uh, compare the European farms more with the Chinese farms in terms of size and, and difficulties. It's, it's all little plots everywhere. And so China has been investing massively the past years into autonomous uh, tractors. Just by coincidence, the same day that John Deere announced their new tractors in China, they had an announcement for the first 5G driverless tractor in the world. And so they're also going massively into that same direction. So what's the John Deere of China called? Well, there's many. I mean, there's, there's, there's hundreds, but this one is called Dongfang Hong. It's going to be very difficult to export that to Europe. But the reality is that agriculture is one of the biggest growing sectors in China and going completely digital. And so the government is putting everything on agriculture and biotech. And so these are two, and chip manufacturing, of course, but agriculture is completely transforming. And this is one of the, the sectors that I think even John Deere will try to get into China just because of the sheer amount of money available to buy these kind of tractors. But the Chinese are undercutting them in price. And so they're very much onto autonomous, I mean, with Baidu and all the others. So I think Europe is going to get flooded by Chinese tractors if we want to go into that direction. And uh, because the John Deere's, I think uh, they're great for East Europe, great for America, but I don't think they're great indeed, like you say, Peter, for Western Europe. But the Chinese might be. So competition is good, right? Yeah, absolutely. And by coincidence, they launched it on the same day. It's exactly <laughs> the same day. Yeah, by yeah, coincidence. By coincidence. Yeah. By coincidence. Um, I, I want to end with you, Pascal, for this episode. We launched a, an ebook, a Trent ebook with Nextworks that everyone can download for free. And you wrote something very interesting in that. And I would like to ask you to share those insights with our listeners. You wrote a, a story, a piece about what you call common prosperity. Well, I don't call it common prosperity. It's actually Xi Jinping who calls it common prosperity. So uh, I stole it from him. That's okay. Uh, but that's okay. <laughs> but the whole idea of common prosperity is not new. It, it came from a long, long time ago. Mao Zedong was already talking about common prosperity, but then it was very much against the bourgeoisie and the capitalists, and we all need to be more prosperous in the country. And then Deng Xiaoping in the 80s, he used it very often. And he said, well, we first need to get the people rich in China. And once they're rich, there's a second part to that sentence, which everybody forget. Once China is rich, then we need to achieve common prosperity. And so Xi Jinping right now says like, okay, I've managed to get 850 million people out of extreme poverty. So there's no more extreme poverty or poor people in China, but there's still a lot of poor people in China. There's about 500 million people in the middle class. There's about 900 million people living on a few hundred euros a month still. And so that's not a lot of money. So these are still considered poor people. And Xi Jinping's big goal for the next 15, 20 years is really to get them into what he calls common prosperity. And so there's very few people in the West that talk about this, but the reason I wanted to put it in the ebook, but also that I, I really think we should all know about it is because 1.4 billion Chinese are only talking about this because this is really about helping the poor into the middle class. And a lot of people say, okay, this is of course, 
initiated by the Chinese Communist Party. This is going back to egalitarianism. It's, it's everybody the same. It's stealing from the rich, like we've seen with the, the crackdowns on Alibaba and on, on, on other companies. It's, it's about these influences that cannot say and do anything anymore. So it's really about the control of the party. And, and this is the whole goal. But if you talk to Chinese, they're saying, well, the West got it completely wrong. And what it's really about, and that's why I think it's interesting to talk about, it's about the fact that China wants to be capitalist in a way, but doesn't want to have the bad problems of capitalism that they see in America or in the US specifically, and a little bit in Europe as well, which is to do with inequality. And China is a very inequality country right now. There's a lot of rich but there's many poor still. The inequality has been growing until 2008, and now it's actually getting better and better every year. And so they want to get this closer, but they're also talking about polarization issues, the division issues, populism, of course, with Trump and other things that are happening. And the middle class that used to be great in America, but now is shrinking every year and more and more poor people. And so China is very concerned from a policy point of view that if they continue on the path that they have been for the past 40 years since the opening up of China, that it will actually create all these problems and it could actually implode the whole society. And that is why it's so high on the agenda and they call it common prosperity is their goal. And in Chinese it's gong tong fu yu, in case you want to remember that word. <laughs> and what it means is actually that, so in, in the West we have this pyramid structure where 1% of the rich people, they own like... 20% of all the wealth and 10% of the richest people own like 50% of the wealth. And so there's a pyramid of demographics. And then there's uh, in China, they want to have this olive shape where the middle class is really the big part. And so if you think about 1.4 billion people, they want to have almost 1 billion people in the middle class. And how they're going to achieve it is by growing that pie or that olive, like they say, and also to change the mindset a little bit of how people are actually achieving their goals and what to do with it. And so there's three different categories. I mean, there's the rich people and the rich people need to change their way of once they get rich, how they actually use that money to get even richer that benefits also the poor at the same time. And this is an almost utopian dream, but it's really about setting regulation. And this is about not thinking exclusive, but thinking inclusive. And so the problem that China sees with America specifically, they're always looking at the U.S. As, as the bad example of things that could happen and if they continue. And so what they see is that the top people that have all the wealth, that they actually control also a little bit their society, their top. What that means is that their kids of rich people get into better universities, they have better chances for jobs. And so that is what China doesn't want. They want to have more equal opportunity for everyone. But it's not like the European societal model or socialist model, because it's very different from just everybody having different taxes, depending if you're more rich, you pay more taxes. It's more about figuring out a way to be more inclusive if you made it. And then the middle class, they want them to be more innovative, more entrepreneurial. So saying that this is about party control and 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 Cracking down on innovation is completely not the story that you hear in China. The story in China is really, we want this 500 million middle class to become a billion, and they have to be the most innovative and entrepreneurial around, and we will help them to make it happen. But if they get very rich, then they shouldn't forget how they got rich. 
they got rich because of the poor people that did all these deliveries for JD.com. And so they need to help these poor people get into the middle class. And so this is about an inclusion program. And so it's a lot to do about taxes. What many people don't know is that actually China has one of the lowest taxes in the world. It only is about 20% of the GDP that the government gets is from taxes. While in, in the West, like in France or Germany, it's more than 45% of GDP is all through taxes. So China is actually pushing this entrepreneurship very, very much. Now, you could also say that they're not effective because of that, because the taxes are so low and they should actually be bigger. But that's another story. The reality is we're going to see property tax. We're going to see inheritance tax. We're going to see wealth tax, all things that are not taxed in China right now. And so the rich are going to get more taxed. But it's really about a mindset change. And it's about making sure that you don't forget how you got rich. And China or the government does not believe that individuals can decide that themselves which is the American model, of course. American model, Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, they give a lot of their money, half of their money to good causes, but not every rich person is doing that. And so the Chinese government wants to help them a little bit along and just say, well, we will tell you a few guidelines of how to do that. And the best way to imagine it is like a tax on CO2. It's going to be a tax on exclusion. The more you exclude the poor and the more you exclude the vulnerable, the more taxes you're going to pay. And so it's a story that many people tell, but China's taking this very serious because they know if they don't achieve some of that, the country could actually start to have really big problems like we saw with Evergrande real estate crisis just recently. And so this is all about giving more that inclusion. And the interesting thing and why I believe it's something we should all talk about or look at at least is because suddenly there's like hundreds of millions of poor Chinese, who actually believe that story. And whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. When you have hundreds of millions of people <laughs> being hopeful and wanting to become part of that middle class, you have actually a disruption happening. And so this is what you're seeing now. So I'm very excited to see how this will play out. But there's going to be a lot of reforms. But we're not talking about it in the West at all, because we're looking at it like, yeah, it's back to communism, back to stealing from the rich. And China is talking about very different things. And so there's going to be a lot of reforms. But uh, common prosperity could go global if it succeeds. The Chinese dream versus the American dream. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing that, Pascal, and giving those insights to us. I want to thank both of you for all the, the insights and stories. I want to thank all our listeners for listening to this first episode of Radar in 2022. And we hope to see and hear you again in our next episode. Take care, everyone and see you next time. Cheers, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.